The views in this do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, Student Media, or NCSU. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle. The time is 7.04, and it's Tuesday, June 16th. And on behalf of the EOT team here at WKNC, I'd like to thank you for tuning in. I'm Ian Grice. We have a live broadcast of Poetry Corner this week later in the show, and before that, Kevin Kronk takes a look at Theaterfest. Michaela was able to interview a postdoctoral researcher who was featured on news.ncsu.edu for research on ants and background on punk rock. Here it is. I was surfing the news.ncsu.edu website and came across an article about a postdoctoral researcher who before his debut as an academic was in a punk rock band and I thought how appropriate would it be to have him in the station to talk about his research, his music, and how he managed to combine the two. Clint Pennock, as I have already said, is a postdoctoral researcher here at NC State working in the lab of Dr. Rob Dunn, concentrating on insects. So, my first question for him was to tell us of his humble beginnings. So, I didn't really get interested in the ants until college, but that's sort of a lie. So, in college, I started working with uh, a professor named Walter Chinkle at Florida State University when I was an undergrad who studied ants. He's famous for doing these ant nest casts where he entombs ant colonies. And But if, if I back up kind of before that, the connection between ants and punk rock really began for me uh, when I was 13 years old and I started my first band um, with several friends in my garage. Uh, and when we needed a name, I came up with the Army Ants. And so at the time, I didn't really think much of it. But now in hindsight, I'd always kind of been fascinated by ant documentaries on TV. Um, I thought ants were pretty cool, cool enough to name my punk band, my middle school punk band after them. I was always fascinated about how most ants are female and how the females and males were different. So naturally, I asked him. All worker ants that you see are females. So ants also have males, but uh, males look usually completely different. They look kind of like little wasps. They have wings. Um, and they produce them only at one time of the year, and they fly out on a mating flight and look for females, and they basically have sex and die. That's the entire life of a male. And the easy way to tell a male apart from a female is that males have much smaller heads. And we say that because um, other species, males have one-track minds. They basically want to get out of the nest um, and find a partner to mate, and that's it. So in the research that I do beforehand with interviews, I read online that he did a lot of work with pavement ants, which are the most common type of ant in the cities worldwide. So pavement ant is this species that 
has found its niche in our cities. It's kind of like the, the pigeon of the insect world. And, but what's fascinating to them is that they've kind of followed humans around the globe as we've colonized new areas. So they're not from the United States. So like fire ants, they're also um, non-native, but they've been living in the U.S. for several hundred years now. Uh, and they don't really sting and they don't bother people too much. Uh, and so I think most people would would uh, be okay with the pavement ants in the city. So there's not big problems with them. Some of our researchers actually find that even though they're just kind of hanging out in our cities and we're not paying a lot of attention to them, they're actually performing some pretty important services for us. So a lot of my work is studying what they eat. And it turns out they eat our food, but not in our kitchens. They were almost never in your kitchens. They're on the sidewalks. And so when you drop your food on the sidewalk, pavement ants are usually one of the first species to show up. Um, and so uh, they're actually providing a pretty big service for humans to kind of clean up our garbage and clean up after us when we litter. Clint had the opportunity to work with NASA in an effort to send ants to space, and he was pretty excited about it when I asked him to tell us more about that story. So it was the pavement ant that's made it to space. So we say the ants have followed us all around the world, and now they have actually followed us into space. They're one of the first ants. They're actually not the first ants to make it in space, but they're the most recent. This grew out of sort of a random email that someone was looking particularly for pavement ants and NASA had kind of dropped the ball and waited until it got too cold outside. And so you couldn't, find, even though they're the most common ant in the world, nobody could find them because it was winter. Uh, and it turned out I had been doing some research on them and I had um, a couple colonies in the lab. Uh, they were interested, and I walked to FedEx, and I shipped these ants to NASA, and then they put them in a rocket and sent them to the space station. And so that's basically where my involvement with this ended. But they actually did, went, and the astronauts actually did experiments with them, um, and then they actually published a paper on it uh, a couple months ago. He's an expert on social traits in ants, and I had no idea what that meant, and Luckily, he was kind enough to explain it to me in layman's terms. So when we study ant colonies, one way uh, that we have to describe them is we call them superorganisms. So unlike um, an individual, like a human or a dog, really for an ant, it's the colony that matters. So when I talk about studying social traits, what I mean is I'm studying things like, like body size. So body size for a human is how tall we are, how, how much we weigh. Um, body size for an ant is really the number of workers in a colony, the weight of the whole colony. So when I talk about studying social traits, to some degree what I'm talking about is studying uh, phenotypes or, or traits, it's another word for traits, that describes um, aspects of the entire colony rather than just individuals within that colony. But also from that, um, one of the other key facts about social insects and something that makes them social is that they have this division where some of them reproduce um, but most of the workers in the colony actually don't. So instead of raising their own offspring, they basically help their mother or their sisters um, raise, raise offspring. And so those are the queens. The queens are the ones that reproduce and the workers don't. So a lot of my research uh, has studied how this division occurs. So I've looked at um, how a larva in an ant colony can either grow up to become a queen or to become a worker. And then I've also studied um, in this sort of rare species from India, which is what I did my dissertation work on, um, the workers actually can still mate and reproduce, but what they have to do first is they fight in a dominance hierarchy. So after their queen dies, the workers fight in this dominance hierarchy, and it takes them about a month, but at the end of that, you end up with a group of workers that all lay eggs, and they become the de facto queens. 
Um, we call them gamma gates in the species. And then all the other workers just refrain from laying eggs and they're the regular workers. The key division for what we have in all social insects is not based on the number of queens, but just the fact that there is a difference where there are workers that don't reproduce and then there's another subset of individuals that do reproduce. Um, but then after you meet that criteria, essentially everything else happens. There's even, uh, there's even bee colonies that are just two workers uh, or two individuals, one queen and one worker, and that's it, ranging up to um, something like army ant colonies that can have millions of workers and only one queen. The road to becoming a queen ant, it's far from easy, and in some species of ants, it's not only difficult, but somewhat barbaric. There's a species of ants that chooses its next queen in a somewhat gladiatorial style technique. The first time I saw it, it, was, uh, it just sort of blew my mind. So what you look into these colonies, and the ants, they're from India, they're called Harpignathus saltator, um, is their scientific name. And so you look in their colonies when they start this fighting, and the ants are um, about half an inch long, maybe a little larger. They have these really big eyes. They're, they're a predatory species that walks around outside, and they use their eyes to hunt. So they look for things like little spiders or other insects, um, which they capture, paralyze, and bring back to the nest. Um, and so they can actually jump also when they hunt. So they can jump with their legs, tackle the prey, um, and bring it back to the nest. So they're, just, they're already this sort of charismatic species for an ant. But then when you're watching these ants in the lab and you get them in a lab colony and you see what happens when you remove the queen, within about three hours, the whole colony dramatically changes. Instead of all of the workers leaving the nest and looking for food, they all come back inside um, and they pile up all around um, their, their larvae and pupae and they start fighting with each other. And they fight in a very ritualized way. So it's very similar to watching um, you know, two buck fight over a female. And kind of the clashing of horns, or, or even in some cases, it's much more similar to like watching a, a wolf colony battle for their hierarchy position. So what the ants do is they fight with their antennae, and they beat their antennae um, hundreds of times in a second, back and forth. Uh, and so the ant, we call it antennal dueling. So one ant slaps the other in the face with its antennae, and then the other ant responds by slapping the other ant um, back with her antennae. And this can go on, like I said, for, for days, and in some cases, weeks or months. What you see initially after about three hours is sometimes half the whole colony is fighting each other and doing this way. And then when one, uh, when one ant is clearly outmatched, her partner, instead of using her antennae, will be like, that's it. I'm biting you now and I'm going to bite you in the face and then it's over. And so then, so then that worker will bite one in the face and usually the, the losing worker then will revert to her role as just a, a sort of a lowly non-reproductive worker. And so this has to happen hundreds of times, and then eventually you winnow it down, and you end with um, usually 10 to 20 of these worker queens that we call gamma gates in a colony. And once this is all established, ants are smarter in some cases than wolf colonies rather than constantly fight everything out. Um, what they do is they then switch to pheromones. So these are a chemical signals. So the ones that win display this new um, sort of alpha position chemical signal and all the other workers recognize them as dominance and there's no fighting so the colony can go on peacefully for years after this until those uh, original gamma gates die um, or they're deposed by another set of workers. If you google Clint's name a bunch of articles and blog links pop up so of course I asked him to tell me more about it. Another one of my personal interests is communicating sort of about science and what we do to the public and one way that I do that is I write, in some cases, for magazines. Um, and I also write for our lab um, has a blog called Your Wildlife. And so I post regularly on there. 
so that's another component of what we do in our lab in general is we try to engage people, tell them about the animals that we love, and also get people involved in science. So we do a lot of citizen science and outreach. And so example of the citizen science that we recently did, we did um, in conjunction with the North Carolina Natural History Museum's Bug Fest, which they hold every year. One of the things I wanted to figure out, there was this weird species of ant that gets in people's houses. They're called the odorous house ant. And when I went online, there was all these stories about them that they smelled like rotten coconuts. And that's why they're called the odorous house ant, because they have this stinky odor of rotten coconuts. Um, and before I came to North Carolina, I was living in uh, Phoenix, which is where I did my PhD work. Uh, and out there, we didn't have the species, but we had some similar related species. And when you crush those up, they also have a really strong odor. But the odor isn't of coconut. It's of blue cheese. Very specific. They smell like blue cheese, like what you put in your salad. Uh, and so when I came to Raleigh, one of the first things I was excited about was smelling the, blue, the, the coconut ant. And so I had to wait. I got here in the winter. And so uh, finally spring came. And then, of course, the ants came out and they invaded my house like they do many people's locally. And then I crushed them up and smelled them and was ready for coconut. And I was totally let down. It smelled exactly like blue cheese. It smelled like everything else. And so I was very upset about this. So initially I went online to see if I had just heard wrong. But no, pretty much every online site that talked about them, which was a lot. So there was over 100 websites I checked that mentioned their, their odor. Um, and described it as rotten coconuts. And most of them were pesticide, pest company websites that are trying to help homeowners identify the ants in their house. But since I thought they were all wrong, I set up um, an experiment that we did, or really a survey that we conducted at Bugfest where we had um, people participate by smelling these ants and then telling us what they thought they smelled like. So we actually let, we, we let them pick between a few of the common choices. So we gave them um, rotten coconut, blue cheese, Rancid butter was another one. And then we let them, if they didn't think it smelled like any of those, they could have a write-in candidate and tell us what they were. And so at the end of that, blue cheese won. So there was still a lot of people who thought they smelled like rotten coconuts. And since, uh, since we're scientists, what I did was um, I called one of my friends up and we actually measured the chemical. We, we identified the chemical compounds in the ants and also in coconut and also in blue cheese. And what we found is the same type of chemicals that are in the ant are also in blue cheese but they're not part of the coconut smell. But then finally we said, well, okay, the plot thickens here. Um, we just did a regular coconut, but to be fair, it had to be a rotten coconut. And so we rotted a coconut. I buried it in my backyard for a couple of weeks. And when I dug it up, it turned out it was covered in a blue green mold. And it turns out it's the same mold. Um, it's in the same genus that they use to make blue cheese. And when we ran it then, it had the exact same compounds blue cheese did. And so it turns out, you know, these ants do smell like rotten coconut. Um, but it's just because rotten coconut actually smells like blue cheese. Um, so this was sort of a silly experiment that we did. It helped get people in the local community engaged. We had several hundred participants in the study, um, and even more than that that I've talked to since then. Um, and so that paper is actually getting ready to come out in a couple of days. And now we finally bridged over to his music history. And despite his success in a punk rock band, he couldn't even remember if he played here in the Triangle on his national tour. But it's a really interesting story nonetheless. So long before I was interested in science, I was interested in music, which is, I think, pretty common for someone. I, there's not very many people that are in, you know, 13 years old that are like, oh, I really love ants or science or chemicals or whatever else. Um, but most 13-year-olds, a good, a good proportion, are pretty into music. Um, and so I, I was one of those. Basically, as soon as I um, got into middle school, I was able to get an electric guitar and immediately wanted to start, start a band. 
Um, and so this was around the same time that Nirvana had gotten popular and there was sort of this idea that anybody could go out and start a band in their garage and in some cases get famous. But at that point, we didn't really care. It was like, who cares? We just want to start a band uh, and, and start playing shows with our friends. Uh, so I got into music really early on. I played all through middle school. We ended up played our eighth grade dance. We were the, the school band for that. I had always been interested in punk music. One, because it's really easy to play. And that's sort of the whole point. You know, it's not about how good you are as a musician. Um, it's just about doing something, getting out there. So we were able to start a band when we were very young. And then I kept playing all through high school. Things started to get more serious when I was in college. And this is when, to some degree, the music side of things started overlapping with the science. Because while I was doing my undergrad and doing experiments on ants, I was also in this, what I would call a mildly successful, like hardcore punk band that... We, that was touring basically any time that I had off, and then in between that I was doing experiments on ants. The band we were called Kids Like Us. We were a hardcore punk band. And, and at the time, there was sort of this return to some of the old-school punk and hardcore band styles. So we were really interested um, in bands like Minor Threat, The Gorilla Biscuits, Black Flag. So those, I would say, were like our major inspiration. Basically, I had, um, over the summer, I had run into uh, an old friend that I hadn't seen since middle school, actually. And um, he had been in a fairly popular band at the time, um, but they broke up and they were looking to start something new. And so we got together and just started playing some songs. Um, within a month, we had recorded a demo. We started playing um, locally. I was from Florida, so we, we were based out of Tallahassee, Florida. And so we started playing local shows in Florida and, and had developed a pretty good sized following pretty quick and we signed to a record label and then kind of went on from there. The band that I was in had a very bad reputation. We were banned from clubs all across the U.S. We were banned from San Diego, Daytona, uh, Myrtle Beach. Uh, we were we, we had this sort of this very bad reputation and I can't really own up to being a part of that. So the reputation was mostly based on the other members of the band. I was sort of the quiet one. But we actually, when our first major album came out, it was reviewed um, by Alternative Press, which was like the big punk magazine at the time. And it was just a list of horrible things we did to people all across the country. And then, and then the last line was just like, and their album sucks too. Which is basically the absolute best album review you could get as a punk band. So we just, we, we absolutely love. Yeah, we, we owned our bad reputation after that. Can I ask what you guys did to have such a bad reputation? No, you can't ask that. <laughs> and lastly, I asked him why he decided on NC State, hoping it would be a heart-filled answer that would bring one single tear to your eye. And it kind of did. So there, there's a couple of reasons why I came to NC State. So I did my undergrad work at Florida State and then my PhD at Arizona, uh, Arizona State University. Basically, the next step of things you do in science research is you get a postdoc position, which is what I have here at NC State. Um, so when I was finishing my PhD, I was looking around for people um, who were doing ant research and who were doing cool things. Um, and that's when I saw the Dunn Lab here at NC State. And I was drawn to this lab in particular, not just because they were doing ant science, which is something I can easily fit in with, um, but also because uh, a large part of what our lab does is outreach and communication with the public. So it opened up a venue to let me also write for a larger audience in the blog. Um, then also Rob Dunn, who is the, the professor I work with, um, is a, is a well-known writer. He writes science books and stuff like that. Um, and so that was a major draw for me, the, the research side of things with ants, but also the outreach side of things and communication with the public. I would like to thank Clint Pennick for coming in and speaking with us. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Michaela O'Connor. 
I'm Kevin Cronk, and this is Eye in the Triangle. Today, I'm going to explore the North Carolina State University Theater's big month-long summer event, Theater Fest. I have with me the director of University Theater, John McGilwee. So, Theater Fest has been running for almost two weeks now. How's it been so far? Well, we've had sellout crowds for every performance so far. So I guess that means we're being successful this summer. One of the things about Theater Fest is it is an event that a great many members of the community audience look forward to, as well as the students who participate in the productions. That's great. So where is Theater Fest held? Theater Fest is always held in Thompson Hall in the Titmus Theater and the Kennedy McElwee Studio Theater. So we go back and forth between the three shows. It's an unusual situation because it's the only rolling repertory situation in the triangle. And that means that one show opens and then it plays for a few days and then the next show opens and plays in conjunction with the first one and then the third show opens and plays in conjunction with both and then the first one goes away, then the second one goes away and we end up with a few performances of the last show. So it's is Theater Fest something the theater does every year, and how did it come about? Yes, this is the, about the 20th year for Theater Fest, and it really came about because when I was looking around the the neighborhood of Raleigh, trying to see what we could do in the summertime, because my staff is on all year round, we came up with the idea of doing a rolling rep originally, and we did it all three plays originally on the same set so we didn't we didn't change sets like we do now when we use both theaters but it was successful from day one. First of all when we first started it was the only summer theater in the area now everybody else has found out about it <laughs> and there are a lot of theaters having summer theater so what is the difference between productions during the summer and during the school year well obviously our staff continues to design and build sets costumes uh, do the lighting and all the publicity and everything that we normally do. But in the case of the summer shows, we have auditions early in in February and we pick experienced actors from the community. We have some professional actors. We also have some professional actors who come in from this year as far as Boston to do the show. And then we allow our students to audition and we pick our most talented students or those students who are most interested in continuing to have a career in theater. So it's a it's a real mixture, and it always has been, and that works really, really well. There are three plays over the course of the month. Could you maybe give a brief summary of each? Sure. I'm very familiar with all three of them. Born Yesterday is the classic 1950s comedy about a robber baron who's made a lot of money selling junk scrap during the war, World War II, and he comes to Washington to try to bribe some congressman, uh, something just unheard of. And he brings with him his mistress, who is the classic dumb blonde. And he is told that unless she classes up a little bit, he won't have a chance there to do his dirty dealings in the back. So he hires a young man who is an intellectual writer to train his mistress in uh, the ways of society and intelligentsia. And she becomes 
becomes absolutely a fanatic about it. Turns out she is extremely smart, and she's smart enough to have what we hope is the classic comic ending in the play. <laughs> and then the second play is a musical. It is all music. It is a review of the music of Stephen Sondheim, America's premier composer, lyricist, and theatrical dramatist. And so it is music from a great selection of all his Broadway productions. And the last show is Wait Until Dark, which is definitely one of the best thrillers from the 1970s. And it's the story of a blind girl who is trapped in her apartment in New York City by a lot of ne'er-do-well criminals trying to find some dope money. And, you know, what happens, what pursues, of course, is the mystery. Wow, that sounds like some incredibly interesting plays. Well, you know what we try to do every year is the same thing that we do during the regular season. We feel that our students are entitled to try many different genres rather than pick a whole season of musicals or a whole season of comedy or all drama. We go from everything from Shakespeare to, to low comedy and modern drama and reader's theater and, and our musicals are always very successful. So we give a well-rounded schedule during the regular year and we try to do the same thing in, a th- in a, that month period with the three plays. So how did you end up choosing these three plays exactly? Well, we have a, a committee of the directors that will be directing the play and the designers who will be designing them. So everybody has an equal say. And, you know, there are some plays I would love to direct, but yes, they're very expensive and or they are just uh, beyond the capabilities of the size of our theaters. And we have a fabulously talented staff. I have a world-class scene designer, world-class lighting designer, world-class costume designers. And so it really, they have as much say in the selection as the the directors do. But of course, we don't want the directors to direct a play they don't like. So, you know, it's a, it's a long conversation about each season. Right now, we're discussing two summers from now. We've already settled the seasons for next year, and we're talking about what's going to happen the following year. So who is the director for each play? Well, Rachel Clem is directing Born Yesterday. Rachel came on full-time last year, and she is a very well-known local director. She is the founder of Common Ground Theater, so she has had a long history of theater in the Triangle. And... (laughs) And I'm directing the musical, <laughs> mainly because I'm uh, a Stephen Sondheim aficionado, and, and I I wouldn't dare give it up to anybody else. And the last play is being directed by our very newest director, Mia Self, who came to us from of the western part of the of the state and uh, directed our 50th anniversary production this year of Antigone Burial Thieves. What is it like directing for the University Theater? Well, I think it's absolutely fabulous. <laughs> or I wouldn't have stayed all this time. But, uh, you know, dealing with the most collaborative art form has its challenges. And right now, we've just assembled an incredible cast and list of regulars who come all the time to uh, audition. And incredibly good staff who collaborate with each other. I've been doing this for 45 years, not here, but professionally I I did it for 20 years and I was in meetings to discuss production where people didn't even speak to each other. That doesn't happen at University Theater. We have a very cordial staff, but we have a very talented staff who knows that collaboration is the most important thing that we do in preparing a production. I also 
am lucky that we're able to utilize three very distinct different spaces and that the, all three theaters are beautiful, well-equipped and uh, for now and are able to challenge us and give us opportunities to do more unusual work whenever we you know, put that in the season. So it really is, it's quite exciting. I direct elsewhere and perform elsewhere and design elsewhere, but when I'm not busy at University Theater, our theaters and the theater program itself are a very, very exciting place to be because of our students and staff. Yeah, definitely. The students are always very excited about University Theater. I think they are because these kids are doing it because they love theater. They love being around the atmosphere of theater. They're not majors. We have lots of minors, but there are they are not majors, and they do it because they want to do it. So they give up their free time and a lot of free time to be able to be in productions and to work backstage and to work with the designers in the shops on a regular basis to create something that we're very well known for in North Carolina, and that is the beautiful sets and costumes and lights. You know, you can't always be assured who's going to audition. But you can make sure that the visual is the best support that you can give the actors when they're on stage. Speaking of auditions, as a director, what are the steps to choosing an actor and how do you know when you have the right one? Well, I love to say that because of all the degrees I have in theater, it's because I trained to to be a, a director and know that. But that absolutely isn't true. What is true is that the director has a, a certain interpretation and concept in mind before the auditions. They've already worked with the designers to set up the visual concept, and now they're looking for people who can act the concept that they want uh, to do that particular play. Each play has a different one. And when uh, someone comes in to audition, I look for, first of all, do they do they physically fit the type of character that play requires? Secondly, do they, do they have the energy, shall I say, the excitement that a lot of actors bring to audition to let me know they're going to be really working very hard on this play. But most importantly, I look for talent. And it is amazing to me how much native natural talent most of our students have that they some of them don't even know they have of course some of them come and get hooked and and they're regulars for their entire university career but when you're selecting a lot of that has to do with the instinct of having uh, the experience of directing quite a long time there are certain little things i i look for uh just in knowing that that person probably is going to be able to fit into the ensemble which i think is very important and are they going to give their all as far as their talent is concerned. And we have a very interesting system at University Theater. We have an acting coach assigned to each production because we know that our our students are coming to us without having been in classes and that sort of thing. They may never have had a, a theater course. And the acting coach works with every person in the production to, to improve their role, to do what the director is asking them to do, and to give them new tools to utilize when they are performing. And that has worked beautifully. The acting coach and the director work hand in hand. Who can perform in Theater Fest plays? Anybody. 
on. <laughs> Anyone who gets cast, we have open auditions. And so, it's, it, like I said, it's community, it's experienced actors, it, we have professional actors in it, and our students audition. So anyone can audition for it and hopefully get in one of the productions. We have had some students who've actually been all three in any given summer. That almost killed them, but, uh, but it was an exciting time to, for the audience to see three very different performances from the same character. And uh, so I, I haven't done that for a couple of years because I realized how tired it made the person. But we have a lot of people who do two plays because you can do the first and the third during rehearsal. Uh, it's the rehearsal period, not the performance period. You know, once actors get the role and they start performing, they don't care how many performances you put in there. They want to do it. Uh, they've, done all the, they've done all the work. But during rehearsal, we have to be careful about how we cast. And so we usually cast, if we cast someone twice... We cast them in a lead role in one play and a secondary role in, in one of the other plays. About how many people are involved in the whole production? Well, the whole production of Theater Fest, there are probably 30 actors and around 45, 50 crew and designers and staff. So I'm sure then there's a lot of work that goes into the production of these plays. Uh, a lot of work and a lot of concentrated work. We start work the the week after rehearsals start the week after school closes for the right for the spring semester so we're hitting around the time of graduation and testing and all that sort of thing but we don't have a break until july in our in our scheduling and then you know like this year we'll finish at the end of june and then we start up the first day of classes we have auditions for fiddler on the roof which is the big musical that's going to reintroduce stewart theater since it's been renovated with the new tally center how does a student or non-student get involved with the university theater well, I, you know, this isn't being supercilious. You show up and you say, I would like to, I would like to do this or I would like to do that. And all you have to do is go to Thompson Hall or to our offices in Tally and say, you know, I'd like to work on costumes. And we put you in touch with the staff member who's in charge of costuming. And uh, so it, you can do that. You can work props. You can work sets. You can work lighting. You can work publicity. You can do all of the costumes. You can do all of those things just by coming into the theater and saying you would like to to participate. Now, auditioning is a different thing. Anyone can audition. And for instance, I did Chicago last year and we had 125 people show up for auditions, 125 students. And so it was difficult. I double cast the whole thing. The, my staff didn't care for that, but uh, we had a lot of fun. And because we had so many students who auditioned and it was all student cast and it was a terrific success and they were just incredibly good. I couldn't choose between sometimes between two people. And and so I just added everybody to the cast. Most of our straight plays, uh, non-musical plays, they are uh, probably have around 50 people audition. Of course, you're not going to get in every play you audition for. There's just no reason to assume that that will happen because there are only so many parts. But we encourage everybody to audition whenever they can. And once they make that commitment, we learn how we work with them. And that makes it a lot easier to cast them in another play, you know, as, we, as they go forward in their university career. 
but showing up is the primary thing. Yeah, of course. All right, so when are the shows and what time? Yeah, the shows open the last week of May and they go through the end of June. And all the evening performances are at 7.30 because our patrons like getting out a little early. And our matinees are at 2 o'clock. We only have Sunday matinees. We found that we probably could have a matinee every day because matinees sell completely out first but like for wait until dark we had to add two shows before we even started rehearsal because they were already sold out so we added two more performances which the actors are thrilled to do because this is a this is a paid gig so so we have to you know figure out how much more they would get paid for two more performances and where can people get tickets you can get tickets by calling Ticket Central, which is our ticketing office for NC State. Ticketing Central at 919-515-1100. Ticket Central is a separate part, but all of our NC State do their ticketing through that, that office. And where can people find parking? Well, it's easy. We're actually the easiest ones to park because on Sunday and on every evening after 5 o'clock, you can park in the huge parking deck that's right beside Thompson Theater. There are spaces right around the front of Thompson, but we have the that triple-deck parking deck right beside us that's free during those, those times. So we're very lucky where Thompson is located. All right, those are all the questions I prepared. Is there anything else you'd like to answer? Well, only that until you have this experience of doing a rolling rep summer program, until you have that experience under your belt, it becomes a, a really fascinating time for all those new people coming in. And of course, we need new people to each year. We have some who love it so much, they come back and come back and come back. And luckily, they're very talented, so we're able to use them. But it is a, an experience that our student actors in particular got so much from as far as being able to watch more experienced people perform and they get to work and ask questions and and uh, sometimes as a director I'll ask a very experienced professional actor can you take that student aside while we're having a break and work with them on your scene together to give them some pointers on how they should respond to you and how they should react on stage? Because acting isn't acting. It's 99.99% reacting to what else is happening on stage and that little percentage of you get to say your line. So working with an experienced actor, I think, is the most beneficial part of doing Theater Fest with our students every year. They are incredibly grateful. They are incredibly sure to find new talents of their own, and they're just incredible. A reason that I'm thrilled to be on campus here at NC State. For more information, you can check out www.ncsu.edu forward slash theater forward slash theater fest. I'd like to thank my guest, John McGillie, for coming down to the station, and I'd like to thank everyone for listening. Have a great day, Triangle. Everyone has a story to tell, but how they tell it differs. Whether you're a poet, spoken word artist, singer, an actor, a musician, everyone has that story to tell. And here is the place to tell it. Welcome to Poetry Corner. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle. I'm Ian Grice, and this is Poetry Corner. I'm here with Taylor Quinn. Can you introduce yourself? Hi, um, I'm Taylor Quinn, and I'm a communication major. I'm a senior. So I understand you have some poems for us today. 
Yeah, you understood right. <laughs> Can you read those? Yeah, I'll go ahead and read my first one. Um, disclaimer, they're kind of sad, so sorry. Okay, here it goes. Um, here we are once again, trapped inside this room with no doors, hiding from the thing we know that will happen sooner than we know. Try to save our time, keep it safe in our own minds, but we have to face the truth that we won't always be with you. But it's okay, it's okay. We will see you another day. No one knows when, not many know how, but take my hand and don't be afraid. So what was the inspiration for that poem? The inspiration was um, about two years ago, my mom was going through cancer. And so um, that's real, That's what all three of them are inspired by. They're kind of like a trio. That was kind of when we knew it was coming to an end dark right <laughs> that's a little dark uh do you have another one for us obviously yes, you do i do okay so this is the second one okay this one's also sad <laughs> trapped inside a body that resents her what do we do make room for us to lie beside her move the bag of meds connected to her veins over take her hand accept that the light is near shed a tear mutual knowing that it's finally over but she can't watch us grow older hold her hand tight because you know it's the last time never will you ever hear her voice or hold her tight no time to fear time feels like nothing at all just an object lurking waiting to see her fall i know you can't stay but i wish you could just wait happiness won't ever be the same without you here we need you near no longer inside the body we remember, what do we do? Make room inside the cabinet for her. Move the prayer cards that were supposed to help over. So I see you had some religious overtones in there, um, or at least towards the end. Yeah, a little just spiritual. Did you feel like that helped in the uh, with the poem or with yourself? Yeah, well, um, that was kind of just alluding to... Um, Everybody else in the situation were, you know, they were like, we're praying for you. We have these, we get, we got like a million prayer cards. Um, and they were, you know, we had just had them around the house. So that was just kind of like, not like a snub, but a little snub at, you know, like they didn't help because she passed away. But, but I'm sorry for your loss. It's okay. Um, the next poem is happier. So, um, it kind of brings it all together. And, you know. Please. Okay, here we go. Rid the shackles on your heart. Try your best. Add a new start. She will be happy, don't you worry. And you'll be fine, just give it some time. It will be alright, I can promise that to you. When the rain stops, the clouds will drop to clear an avenue. To let you see the sun again and let you come to play. So put a smile on your face, my dear, and wash those tears away. I really enjoyed that one. Thank you. Did I enjoyed it, them all. Did it, uh, did it bring a happy ending to the... I think so. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I know that writing can be uh, cathartic. Uh, were these poems that for you? Yeah, well, they're actually originally songs. That's probably why my phrasing was a little weird. 
But um, yeah, so I write songs to, you know, express myself, I guess people would say. Um, but yeah. Mm -hmm. um, well, those were all the questions that I had for you. Um, can you tell us anything else about your poems? Um, I guess it's just a way to get things on paper that you don't usually talk about every day because it would be weird and uncomfortable. <laughs> Um, but, but yeah, so they just, you know, make you feel better when you write them down. Well, I want to thank you, uh, for being on and reading your poetry with us today, your songs, uh, Taylor. Thank you, Ian. Up next, we have This Day in History. Today in history, in 1884, the first roller coaster opened in America on Coney Island. It was the brainchild of Lamarcus Thompson traveled six miles per hour and cost a nickel to ride. In 1903, Ford Motor Company became incorporated. In 1963, Soviet cosmonaut named Valentina Tereshkova became the first woman to travel in space aboard the Vostok 6. A fun fact for tomorrow, June 17th, it's National Garbage Man Day. As you've probably noticed, it's really hot outside and this week is record-setting heat wave will challenge Duke Energy's electrical grid resulting in higher energy costs due to skyrocketing demand. Duke Energy has notified NC State that it anticipates needing to implement strategies that reduce electricity demand, particularly during peak daytime hours. To help maintain electricity supply in our region and limit additional university ex expenditures, please limit non-essential campus energy use through Friday, June 19th. Community Calendar Raleigh Parks Recreation and Cultural Resources will be introducing its first Periscope broadcast of John Chavis Memorial Park on Wednesday, June 17th at 11.30 a.m. And that's all we have for you this evening. I'd like to thank Michaela O'Connor, Kevin Cronk, and Taylor Quinn for contributing. As always, if you've heard anything you've liked, you hated, or anything that made you think, let us know and tweet us at WKNC underscore EOT where you can also catch up on more local news. Also, be sure to check out our blog at blog.wknc.org, where you can also download our podcast. After Hours with Chief Keese is up next at 8, and you can catch another episode of Eye on the Triangle the week after next, right here on WKNC. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Ian Grice.